I don't really like the word sustainability because it's a bit too passive, but creating a future, a better future for our kids and our kids' kids and our kids' kids' kids is the innovation opportunity of my business and every business around the world. Are you ready to reinvent your organization and create a workplace of the future? Welcome to the Optimized Workplace. My name is Fran Dean Bishop, and I'm the founder and CEO of Aerobody. Join me each week as I welcome innovators, A-listers, and trailblazers who will share their individual experiences with creating an optimized workplace. This podcast will inspire you to find new and unique ways of helping your organization thrive while providing an exceptional experience for your employees and nourishing their well-being. Ready to get started? Learn more at theoptimizedworkplace.co. Welcome to The Optimized Workplace. I'm your host, Fran Dean Bishop, where our discussions with influencers, experts, and innovators are helping transform the well-being and sustainability of the, today's workplaces and spaces. Today's episode, we're focusing on the global impact of sustainability and how large corporations are empowering the next generation and diverse communities to join this conversation. With the efforts to improve the built environment, and the external ecosystem where we all live and breathe. Today's conversation, I'm being joined by one of my other favorite people, Nigel Hughes, who is the Senior Vice President of Global Innovation and Research and Development for Kellogg. Now, yes, Kellogg is close to home for many of us. In fact, it's probably in our homes or in our refrigerators right now. It's the producer of some of our favorite cereals and snacks from around the world. Kellogg has certainly been on the forefront of transformation for many decades and is actively leading the charge to cultivate a more sustainable future through its global business efforts. Nigel has had a quite an extensive experience with Kellogg, but before Kellogg, he also served as the Senior Vice President of R&D for SC Johnson, as well as over a decade with Unilever as the Head of Global Technology. So with all of that said, Nigel, welcome. Hi, Fran. Thank you so much for that introduction. I'm extremely excited to join you right here at the start of the new year to talk about this subject, which I'm incredibly passionate about. I know that you are. So full transparency, I met um, Nigel um, last year through an EY special event, their Strategic Growth Forum. And Nigel is known as the futurist among um, the corporate world. So this is going to be a, a, a jam-packed conversation. I've got lots of interesting nuggets that I want to ask Nigel about. And Nigel, I know you're never short of a great response. Thank you. So let's go. <laughs> All right, here we go. So one of the things I'm noticing that's really interesting now is that we're seeing this um, evolution of consumer demand, right? Consumers are really in the forefront of regulation, energy, environment, and even the way we want to start to receive our goods and services and the packaging of those. I recently read that Kellogg has an educational effort um, entitled Managing Sustainability Transformations. And it was interesting because it is exploring this paradigm shift in corporate sustainability, that it's no longer just a practice of compliance or ESG responsibility or from that corporate lens, but it's actually becoming a material imperative on the way you're leading your business and the future of business, which is right in your wheelhouse, right? So as we begin to, Nigel, offer and welcome new players to this conversation around sustainability 
transformation and well-being, especially in the corporate environment. I'm really curious as to, you know, your thoughts and perspective on making these um, points, not just an idealistic framework that corporations, you know, operate around, but making it so that there is a real um, unison between it, the practicality and the applicability for humans, for our culture, and for our community? That's a very broad question, but a great question, Bren. And uh, the way I'll start my answer to that is by by stating my my firm belief that sustainability, and I don't really like the word sustainability because it's a bit too passive, but creating a future, a better future for our kids and our kids' kids and our kids' kids' kids is the innovation opportunity of my business and every business around the world. We see so often that it's painted as a problem. How are we going to deal with this? What are we going to do? We're, we're almost afraid of it. We shy away from it. And that leads some people to, to deny it. That leads some people to back away from it. I see it as a massive opportunity. And it's fundamentally an innovation opportunity. A lot of companies and Kellogg, Kellogg's the same. We have a, a group that focus on sustainability, sustainability measures and the like. And that's great. And we, I work very closely with them. Our chief sustainability officer is a wonderful individual, fantastic relationship. But that's just not enough. We've got to then turn all of that insight into those incredible opportunities in my world for new foods, for new packaging, for new ways of communicating and interacting with our consumers uh, such that we can also address our other mission, which is ensuring accessible nutrition to as many people as possible around the world. And that's not an easy thing to do, but it's a really fun challenge. It's mm-hmm. a really fun challenge. And, and so it's been great over the last few years to get more and more people thinking about that, talking about that, and understanding what we can do about it. The other piece I will add is we're only just beginning to recognize the huge impact of something like the food business on climate change, and on all of those issues around sustainability. 30% of climate impact comes from the food system. By the food system, I mean farming, I mean food processing and, uh, and food, food development, I mean the distribution of food in all of its forms. But that's a big number. And so it really is an imperative that we start to break that down and make real impact upon it. I love that. Incredibly rich, well-packed. And I love the fact that that's what lights you up, right? So for those of you who are just listening and you can't see Nigel, you know, he's a futurist. He's he's in this, he lives and breathes it. But I interview, quite frankly, sustainability folks all the time. I play in the space from a well-being perspective. Not everybody's lit up by the challenge. Let's be honest. Some people kind of want the status quo. They want to kind of turn the page and and sign off on the on the, the the corporate responsibility model and plaque it up on the website and keep moving. So with that, Nigel, can we go a little deeper? And you know, I'm curious, you 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 travel extensively, you've been in a lot of boardrooms. As you said, you're in a lot of very interesting places. You sit on a lot of very interesting stages and, and conferences. What are you hearing? What are you seeing in terms of 
the inroads or the I like to call them the 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 um, mini movement steps that are being made to bring diverse conversants to the table on this conversation, right? So that, like as you said before, there are so many players in it. There's been players in it that have have done it a certain way for such a long time, but now we're starting to notice that you know it is what what we do here in the United States does affect those in Southeast Asia. What they do in the Middle East does affect somebody who lives in California. So how, what, where are you seeing there's potential inroads that, you know, again, we can bring these um, diverse voices to the conversation. And by diverse transparency, I mean those who haven't, you know, sat at that table or been part of that conversation before. So it may be a small business owner. We have a lot of small business owners that may be listening in. It could be someone who is in a startup or, you know, new to this space. It could be somebody who's from a culturally diverse community who's never been a part of this conversation. How do we begin to move the needle? Part of the reason I am so convinced that we're on the right path is I've seen a fundamental change in the way that people view these opportunities and these spaces. Up until fairly recently, I would say up until the last five, five years ago, people were seeing opportunities like this within their own space. What do I mean by that? So if I'm Kellogg, I work with farmers who produce grains. I then take that those grains are processed. I take those processed grains. I turn them into food. I then work with a customer, a big customer like Walmart, it could be, or, or various other retailers, and, and those foods get sold to consumers very linear, narrow, linear approach. What's happening now is people are starting to see that that's not the reality. The reality is that this is a complex emerging system. Now, that sounds like very fancy talk, but I'm going to, I'm, I'm, I'm happy with a bit of fancy talk in this instance, because it represents the way in which we can change our thinking. What do I mean by it? Well, first of all, a system. This is not just some linear uh, transformation process. It doesn't just go straight from a farm through a company like Kellogg into the hands of a consumer. There are many, many players in this. And new approaches allow us to bring more players into this. I'll come to, back to that in a moment. What do I mean by an emerging system? I mean an emerging system. I can't entirely predict it. And that's part of the beauty of this space. I can't just draw a picture on the page and go, yeah, that's the way that this system will then operate because it's so dependent upon the interdependencies between people, the interrelationships between people. And what I'm seeing is a fundamental change in which bigger companies approach these problems. In the past, they've taken a command and control approach to these opportunities in these areas. Now they're saying, no, let's be clear. We are part of a much more sophisticated system. And if we're going to make change in that system, we've got to work differently with the people who provide our inputs. Those could be farmers. Those could be packaging suppliers. Those could be all these kinds of people. And the people that we then serve, our customers, the retailers mostly for us, and our consumers, and engage all of those people in the conversation. Now, that's a nice idea, but it's not straightforward. 
you've got to behave very, very differently. If you're looking at a world that's based around interdependencies rather than transactional relationships, you've got to behave very differently because you've got to then engage people in a different way. You don't just go up to someone and say, these are my demands. This is what I am willing to pay. This is what I'm willing to do. You've got to engage them much, much earlier. You've got to engage them in the whole flow of, the, of that system rather than engaging them in this traditionally transactional way that we have in corporations. Now, I come back to the, to the point you were making about engaging wider numbers of people. Why does this allow us to engage wider numbers of people? Well, there are two reasons. First of all, if I've got a big, hairy opportunity, but it's complex, I need to have as diverse an inputs as I possibly can. So, so forget whether I like it or not, whether my, my life could be easier or not without it. It's not possible to make progress unless I have diverse input. So it's changed the balance there. And this is a wonderful thing. And when I started my career 30-some years ago, companies absolutely controlled everything that they did. Big companies. I started my career in Unilever, as you mentioned. They were able to control their world. Now, that's not possible. And so it brings more people to the table. The second point is, though, and this is really important, because of advances we are making in the way in which we are able to communicate with people and control um, control the inputs, because we do need some level of control of the inputs. If we're gonna if we're gonna bring new players in, we need to ensure certain quality standards, we need to ensure certain ways of doing things. But mm -hmm. we can now do that with digital methods of tra tracking and tracing of ingredients and the like. And this is really, really fun because there's no reason now why we can't reach out to anybody anywhere in the world that has a potential solution for some of these wonderful opportunities and bring them into this incredibly rich system that we're developing. I love that. Love, love, love that. I want to drill down a bit because you said something that's bringing up a paradoxical question. And I know you love these zingers, so this won't throw you off. You love this kind of stuff. So you mentioned some of the most complex issues that we have, right? In supply chain, ecosystem, bringing it all together. And then we have someone who's out here kind of listening, whether it's in the blogosphere, listening to this conversation, or just has an idea around solution. I think Shark Tank, sometimes you think, see the things on Shark Tank, you're like, how in the world did you ever come up with that? Well, it was a problem, right? Best way to find a new solution is when you have a big problem. So what do you feel the biggest opportunity there is around the complex issue and uh, an entry point? so that we could perhaps have an inflection? Fantastic question. I'm going to start where it isn't, and then we'll work our way to where it might be and how best to, to activate it. and bring energy to, to these processes. Go for it. It is not at the level of an idea. As human beings, we're taught from very, very young age that the key thing are ideas. Ideas are, are what matter. Actually, I believe ideas are dangerous things. I describe ideas as, at best, the manure of innovation. Right? You, you, you need some ideas to, to get fertile ground, but they are not the product of innovation. 
you know, you've just blown up the blogosphere with that conversation, with that statement. Well, no, but I, I, it's so important. And, and, and why, do I, why do I think that? I think that for several reasons. First of all, ideas tend to be very, very narrow when they first arise. And solutions need the manure of ideas, but they need to be much broader and, and much more flexible and pliable than single ideas. The second thing is ideas tend to be the possession of individuals. We have ideas. I had an idea. It is, and you can see the action I'm making. The folks on this uh, podcast can't see it, but I'm making a notion uh, pointing towards my brain. It, it, ideas almost represent us. They are what we are because we're this, this series of notions in our mind. Yeah, the, yeah. the danger of that is that immediately speaks against the interdependence which is required for solutions in these complex spaces. Immediately, I am holding on to my idea rather than, mm. rather than seeking the right solutions to these these complex opportunities. And so that's why I don't start with sharing ideas. I believe the place to start is to get a common understanding as to whether you can see a, a uniting solution coming together. If you come to me and you're a startup, I'm not interested in your idea I'm interested in the world you want to create through your idea. What is your thinking going to do to change the world? And does that change in the world marry with the change in the world that I see from a Kellogg point of view or as an individual? And if we can, if we can come together in that common view, vision, you might call it, but a common view of the future world, the way in which we are going to, to, to change the world, then we've got the basis to work together. Of course, that will be fueled by that thing called an idea. That's why I call it the manure, right? You need it to fertilize the ground. But, but you've got to really work on, can we see a common solution? If we can see a common solution, and in, com in, in, in commercial life, it's not only a common solution because we don't just work for fun, it's a common solution that we believe can have some commercial value. Can we both see that? If we can start to see that, then we can begin to work together. And then what I find happens, and it doesn't matter whether these are individuals inside a company or they're outside a company, what happens is a fertile dialogue starts. And actually, and, and we, we work a lot. I, I work a lot with startups. We work a lot with startups. Often you'll find the very first notion that a startup comes to you isn't the one that is the bigger thing when, when you start talking together. Because you, start, you, you both start laying out those future visions, and suddenly, suddenly someone will say, oh, wow, yeah, well, actually, what we can do is this, this, and this. And it's way bigger than the initial, the initial thought or the initial notion. So playing in that solution space is, is, is really important to me. Um, and again, it's, I go back to the psychology of it. It's a lot more fun because there's this notion then of co-creation 
rather than a notion, a protectionist notion of this is my idea. You know, I, I, I'll give you a little bit of it, but, but I'm not giving you all of it because I don't know if I, if I want to share it all with you. And, and you know, the, we've institutionalized that. The patent system institutionalizes that. It's a very interesting, <laughs> interesting uh, thing. <laughs> now, now, I'm not going to turn the whole of uh, intellectual property thinking for the last hundred years. On no, you're course. absolutely right. You're absolutely but it, right. But it institutionalizes that holding on rather than that giving up and creating something even bigger. And I go back yeah. to what I said before. When you talk about these really really big opportunities, these really complex problems, then you've got to be way more fluid. I don't like the word agile, but I could even use that here. No, I love it. I, I, you've said so many things I feel like that resonate with with me as a business owner, with me as an innovator creator, when we're thinking about, you know, what's a new go-to-market strategy to help a customer with X, or, you know, just sitting in a conference room like we did, you know, at, at, at SGF. And hearing new ideas, like with metaverse mm-hmm. or what people are trying to do, because you're absolutely right. Co-creation, I love that term, and I love fluidity, because you do have to be willing to talk about not just the complex issue, but how you're thinking about changing that, impacting that, evolving that. And then as you start the conversation, who do you need to be on that team? You can't solve that complex Issue. I think back to a structure like, you know, I'm going to throw a wild card in here. Like if you look at who Amazon is today, when Bezos set out to create the, I'm just going to send, I want everybody in the world to love books and to read books. He had to create an ecosystem around that, right? Of connectivity. Who am I going to deliver these books? Who are the shippers I'm going to need? Who, how am I going to talk about these books? Who are the authors and who's going to review these books? How do we continue this? And that's a, you look at Amazon, an organization like that today, it's a huge ecosystem of influencers and innovators and experts and, and, and vendors and all this stuff. But you can't do that in a silo. So you're absolutely right. I think the other piece that you brought out um, is the fluidity of it, fluidity of it, right? Um, so using that model, you know, what, whatever it is that you may be thinking about, and when I say you, I mean people who may be listening to this this episode right now, that you may be looking to do to craft something different in your organization or even in your office system or even in your home, if you will, around um, clean energy or clean food or, you know, the clean the cleanliness of the environment, you have to get out and start to talk to people and figure out what's working and what's not, which perfectly segues into an area I wanted to touch on. So you recently had a post. So for those of you who don't know, Nigel is very, you know, he has a lot to say, right? If you haven't figured that out yet from this episode, he has a lot to say, but I love his conversation because he always, it, it's always very interesting and he really makes you think deeper about you know, some complex things that are having going, that are going on. But you recently had a post on your um, LinkedIn blog that you said, um, you know, the post was the most innovative countries in the world, right? And you said, I love the line, your tagline, your last line, you said, um, let's make sure that we don't mistake inflation for innovation. So I'd love you to talk about a little bit about what you meant by that, because there are a lot of countries um, that are saying that they are the most innovative and they're doing some really innovative things. It will impact that as the second layer to this. But what did you mean by that? Don't mistake inflation for innovation. Thank you so much for asking that question, Fran. I, I was very passionate when I wrote that uh, that particular little uh, 
little critique of, of, of the paper. What I meant by inflation versus innovation, I'm going to be indulgent for one second and go back to the history of innovation. And um, the, the notion that human beings have been innovating forever, but since, uh, since we became, became human, animals innovate, uh, despite us thinking that they're not smart enough to, they do. But the, the codification and the commercialization of innovation was really a notion that was, was captured by uh, an economist called Joseph Schumpeter around the time of the Second World War, just before the Second World War. And he called it creative destruction. He was doing a critique of, of, of Marxism versus capitalism at the time, because back in the, in, the, in the 1930s, it wasn't clear which one would be the dominant force. And, and, and he, created, he, he created this term creative destruction, which basically said that the capitalist system is dependent upon a, comp, uh, a, a continuous series of, of breaking down and recreating, of breaking down and recreating to continuously evolve and serve, uh, serve the need of the consumer. Uh, that notion has served us as human beings incredibly powerful for many, many years. But Schumpeter wrote in, in, in small writing at the bottom of one, one of the pages, there is a real dilemma in that because he believed that it, and he believed it would be the downfall of capitalism, which, which was that, that you can, the creative destruction can become the purpose rather than the innovation and advancement be, being the purpose. Okay, say that and, again. And there, so creative destruction could become the purpose of the economy rather and companies rather than innovation and advance and progress being the purpose of the companies and so what would happen is and, and it can be companies it can be countries it can be anyone who's innovating would simply get into this situation where they churned more and more and more and more just creating new stuff for the sake of creating new stuff that really didn't make any difference really didn't make any material difference to the human condition <laughs> and I call that inflation. I call that inflation. It is very easy to get trapped in. And and please, I'm not pointing fingers. I'm pointing a finger at myself just as much as anyone, anyone else. I've been in the innovation game for 30 some years. And I've seen it happen where you get into a trap of you just keep cycling the same thing because it worked and because, but it's not really materially moving things forward. In the food industry, the classic way this happens is through flavor varianting of things, right? Oh, yeah, we'll do a new flavor variant, do a new flavor variant, do a new flavor variant. Well, you kind of keep it interesting for a bit, but, but really, materially, are you moving forward? Anything? Is, is, is anything really changing? Not that that's, some of that isn't necessary, but I think that's a really interesting and important notion. Mm -hmm. And when I look at innovation writ large now. So I'm going beyond the food industry. I'm coming back to that article. I really challenge whether, and it, and it was another part of the sentence I wrote, I really challenge whether those people who are innovating in those innovative countries that are, that are listed are truly tackling the biggest issues that we face today as a society, as, as human beings, or whether a lot of that work is simply churning to produce to produce variations on a theme that aren't really moving us forward. And I think that is always one of the core challenges of innovation. Is it signaling progress or is it just signaling churn? 
And wow. my argument would be that um, there's a lot of churn goes on. Now, it, I, I'm so glad you asked me the question because just two days ago, I read in the, in the scientific uh, journal Nature another paper which said that the proportion of breakthrough scientific work has declined significantly over the last 50 years, hmm. which is really interesting. Whereas the output of scientific publication and work through, through, through journal publication or patents has significantly increased. That's really interesting. That so is. so I, I don't know if that, I, I don't know if the, if the argument's finished with that, but that's another data point for me, which says we need to be careful. We just need to be careful that we're truly aiming our creative juices, aiming our insights to things which make a significant difference. And how can we do more of that and do, that, and do less of the churn? That is a nugget. So if you didn't catch that, you need to rewind and listen to that again. <laughs> that was a powerful nugget that you just shared, because I think that that is so I mean, it, 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 it's just layered. It's so layered because it gets to product design. It gets to, to service releases. It gets to mm-hmm. growth. It gets to scaling. It gets to anything and everything we do in the business environment and even in the home environment, right? Like if, you, if you're just an individual, why are you adding on to your home? And what are you doing that's that different to it? Only to the point of you end up, oh, I'm downsizing. I'm becoming a minimalist. I don't want anything. So it's like to what... In, point is all this growth and scale and supposed, as you said, innovation, if we're not really moving the needle and changing anything. I love that. That is so powerful. So powerful. You have traveled a lot. You've been a lot of places. You know, I have seen, you have seen the, the, the futuristic thinking and development in the Dubai, what Portugal is doing around, you know, sustainability and ecosystems, even the Netherlands, the UK, what do you think we can learn that they're doing well, and what should we avoid? So I would argue there are, there are some, some things you can learn about the way they're doing things, and there are some things you can learn about what they're doing. The first thing and most important thing that I see many countries, and in fact, not just countries, but cities doing really well is they're trying, they're experimenting. They are doing things differently. They may be small things often, but they're, they're trying and they're doing things differently. And that's got to be something that we all, we all sign up for. And it's impossible to say whether something done at a, at a, at a local level is going to become national or transnational or global. But honestly, that's a facile question experiment at a local level because if you can get it to work there then you have some chance of then finding ways to scale it and other people to borrow it and steal it and make it make it their own so so that i think is really important everywhere i see that that's at the front edge of the sustainability discussion conversation and most importantly action and impact are trying things and, and, and so that might sound like the most trivial thing, but it's really important. So important. If, if I then take the, the what, I find it really fascinating. 
because what is working are, I see as things which are in tune with, they can be a minor adaptation from, but they're in tune with regular human behaviors. What do I mean by that? I'll take the example. I love the example in transport. Now, we can talk about Tesla. We can talk about all of these other things. But one of the biggest revolutions in transportation over the last, the last five years or so have been putting pretty much free, they're not quite free, but uh, putting bikes in cities or scooters in cities. I love it. I use them. I love it. I'm an EV person. I, I think right. they're great. I will say this, full disclosure, I'm a District of Columbia native. The bike lanes here are driving me insane, but I <laughs> see the need. I see the well, need for well, <laughs> Yes. I, I, it, there's a level of disruption, right? It doesn't yes, always fit yes. perfectly with everyone's life. But, <laughs> but, but why does that, why do they work? Well, they work because they are easy access you're not mandating or compelling people to use them. So if it's hosing down with rain, you're not, probably not going to take a bike to do the last, the last quarter mile from the metro station to the office. And they're only intended for those quarter mile, half mile journeys. You're not asking someone to, to cycle 20 miles into the city mm -hmm. and therefore need to be X level of fitness and this and that and the other. I think that's a beautiful example. That's a, a really beautiful example. It's low cost. It's, it, it's easy to do. Incidentally, you can't, and I remember I did another podcast last year or so, and we talked about this. You can't offer the bikes for free. They did that once a, 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 a number of years ago. I know in Amsterdam, at least, they've probably done it in other cities. What happens if you offer them for free is they get stolen. So, <laughs> so human, beings, human beings are far from perfect. Oh, yes. <laughs> and in, in, in Amsterdam, they were stolen and then ended up in the canals, I believe. But anyway, that's a separate story. But if you put a small cost on them, uh, you make them convenient, you, people, people will use them. And that is a huge transformation because what is the most painful part of getting into the office? You and I both have offices down in D.C., you know, the most painful part, it's easy enough to get on the metro if you live in a suburb or something like that. It's kind of fine. The most painful part is you've still got that short hike to get to your office or to get from your office to another another place. Absolutely. And yeah. so filling that gap is, is so straightforward. Another example then is you take that to a next level. And I know the city of Manchester in the UK is doing this. I actually had the opportunity uh, to be in a meeting with their mayor fairly recently. The next thing you do is you make sure that all of your modes of transportation then are integrated. So you make sure that the bus arrives at the time the metro is going to leave, the metro arrives and there's a convenient bike place to get your bike. In the office areas, you've got places to deposit your bike and then you can do rinse, repeat. These are very, very straightforward things. There's that connection you were talking about earlier. Right, right. Yeah, it'll create in a vacuum. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and we can do absolutely the same kind of things with other parts of our lives. We can do the same kinds of things with the food system. We can do the same kinds of things with, with all dimensions of our lives if we start to, to break these things down and, and invoke very straightforward approaches. Now, to your point. Someone ends up being inconvenienced. Yeah, the fact is you had three lanes for cars. You've now got two lanes for cars plus a lane for bikes. 
You know, in DC, okay. it's, it's one lane now. They've gone down to one. Lane. <laughs> well, there we go. Crazy. I'm not. I'm not gonna... <laughs> I'm like, who came up with this plan? Oh my god! I am not. I am not speaking. I'm digressing. I'm digressing. I, no, I'm not. I'm not speaking on behalf of the mayor of DC either. But, but obviously, obviously, there are going to be some of those tensions. But I think you can, you can, you can see that certainly invoking elements of that pointers in the right direction. Now, what um, should we avoid, though, Nigel? What should we avoid that we see that is happening in some of these countries that they're saying, oh, this is a new innovative thing? I mean, what is it overthinking? Is it just trying in, the inflation? I mean, what should be avoided? I believe one thing that should be avoided, and again, I'm going to take this at a high level. I think that, that, that in a number of instances, what we're doing, and I'm, I'm speaking very broadly about the ecological and sustainability space, a number of instances, what we're doing is saying, Oh, well, we can deal with this by putting a price on ecology, putting a price on how much is a forest worth? How much is a, how much are fish worth when they're wild? I think that's very dangerous. I think bringing all of that into the economy is actually, it, it's, it's, it's at best misguided and it's, it's at worst very misleading because you cannot put prices on all of those kinds of things. You, you've got to, the, the economy has a boundary. It has an edge. And we should be very careful about assuming everything can be thrown into that bucket and dealt with in that way. We need to be very clear about what lies outside of that. There's a, there's a whole movement now about commons, right? And commons are a notion that go back to, back to, to, to you know, four, five, six hundred years ago of having common land to, 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 to graze your sheep and all this sort of stuff. But we need to have conversations about what are our commons and how do we protect those commons? How do we make sure that they don't get brought into the economy? And, and there speaks a guy who, who works in corporate America. <laughs> I think it's a very dangerous, I think that's a very dangerous path. And I see some people doing that. And I see some places doing that. Okay. Um, I, the other things I would say that are, that are, that are, you know, I don't know if they're dangerous, but they, but they, they concern me are when people are taking, taking very point solutions. They're saying, and, and, and they're saying, and this is where I, I speak, where I was speaking before about ensure that this is truly locally appropriate. You can, you can take these point solutions and start to say, this place over here should be doing this and this place over here should be doing that. So much is context dependent. So much is context dependent. I, totally I think you've got to be yeah. very careful about taking universal solutions yeah. that are not, and you and I have spoken about this a lot in, in, in my space, um, how that manifests itself is a lot of people, uh, not a lot of people, a whole group of people talk almost about this perfect diet. The perfect diet. If everybody ate the perfect diet, everything would be fine. Perfect diet from a nutritional point of view, perfect diet from a, a sustainability point of view. And what they're missing is the fact that food is deeply cultural. And you cannot decouple the, the food that people consume from their culture. It is their culture. Absolutely. Every single event, celebration is accompanied by food everywhere in the world. Mm -hmm. And therefore, you've got to work within those food cultures to, to, to move the conversation on. You can't work outside of it and impose upon those food cultures. 
Absolutely. And the way that people do things, I mean, it's cultural driven, right? So yep. you have to find a way to work within those cultural norms, but to still the move the needle. So we, you and I could talk about this all day, obviously <laughs> all day long. This has been such a rich conversation. I love it. So you will be on for episode two. Don't even worry about it. You will be back. <laughs> when I send you all an right. invite, I want you to answer it. But as we bring this conversation kind of rounded out, I'm curious, you know, we've now entered into 2023. What happened to 2022? What yeah. are you looking forward to the most this year as you kind of start this new lens? You've been in this field for a long time. You future thinking, you're doing, you know, obviously a lot of things, but what are you looking forward to most in 2023? I'm really excited that we will start to see more and more practical examples. In the end, we talked a lot of philosophy today. In the end, I'm a pragmatist. I, I, I live and breathe by practical, practical examples. Mm-hmm. Impact is what matters. Yep. And I truly believe that we will see more and more practical examples of what that looks like. Um, I'm going to say something slightly bizarre, and, and I'm going to caveat it before I say it, which is always a dangerous thing to do. <laughs> but, but I'm going to caveat it by saying that, 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 COVID was an absolutely tragic global event and, 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 and damaging in so many ways. Mm-hmm. But it also was a watershed event, I believe, to help people see the world in a very different way. And that is helpful. Uh, a lot of people mm-hmm. have understood that maybe some elements of their life were just adding complexity and not really adding true value. And maybe uh, they could do things differently in certain parts of their lives. And I, I see that. I guess you mean by that adding complexity and not true value, a two-hour commute for a... For example. Right, for, for, example, a, for a half-hour or, meeting. Absolutely. Or flying all over the world. For, yeah. you know, the one thing that I always have my tongue firmly in my cheek is when I see those COP meetings around the world and then so many people flying into them from all over the world. But anyway, not for me to critique others. But uh, And at but the same I, time, we're, we're lowering our carbon footprint. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But, the, but the, the point is that so many people have seen new ways of judging what is important to them and, and what they need to support, uh, to truly support themselves, their families, and their, you know, their, their extended networks. And, and I believe that's, that's extraordinarily positive. As human beings, we like to think big about change. We like to think that we're very open to change. We're actually not because we, we've, we've devised ways to be effective and efficient by doing the same things. And so when we have disruptors, and, and there w- in, in, in our lifetimes, there will not be a greater disruptor than COVID, I don't think, and there certainly hasn't been in my life up until COVID. When we have disruptors like that and, and the sort of resets that that brings, I believe that is a time when we should keep the energy of that and keep moving through the energy of that. And particularly as that manifests itself in terms of a rebalanced lifestyle and uh, many, of the, many of the issues and opportunities that we have around broader sustainability, both at a personal level and at a, at a, at a corporate level. I think that is a beautiful, poignant way to in this part one of this conversation. I think you're absolutely right. I think that uh, 
the sad thing that I'm starting to notice as a, a vendor in the corporate space, especially around well-being, is that we're going back to a lot of the norms that we were doing pre-COVID that weren't working. And for some reason, it's almost as if we're not remembering the lessons that were learned. Go back and roll the tape, folks. If you don't remember, go back and play the VHS, play the videos from the, you know, the hospitals being saturated. My husband's a frontline worker. Um, I live it and breathe it every day. And, and we support many uh, folks who are on the front lines through our work in health and healthcare. Um, but I think that's the saddest piece, as you just mentioned, is that it's a huge disruptor. Did we learn the lessons and are we putting those lessons in place? So that's a great way to close out this conversation. It has been a rich one, as I knew it would be. You are phenomenal to talk to and a big thinker um, and huge in, in the space. And I truly appreciate you being with us this afternoon. I hope that my audience has benefited quite as much as I have. Thank you, Nigel. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And for those of you who have listened for the first time or have joined us for the Optimized Workplace, please remember, as I always say, it's it's monumental mini movements that will make the biggest change. So thank you again. I'm Fran Bishop, your host. Have a great afternoon. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Optimized Workplace. For more insights and resources, visit theoptimizedworkplace.co. If you enjoyed this episode, please help spread the word and share with those who will enjoy it as well. See you soon.